0: Please remain standing for uh, this morning's scripture reading. Scripture reading comes this morning from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. If you'd like to follow along in the pew Bibles in front of you, you can turn to page 994. 994. 1 Timothy 6. 17 through 21. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Let me pray this before we get into God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we think about the power of your Word, that in the beginning you spoke, and all creation came into being. The stars were put into their place, the earth was formed, the creatures that flew in the air that roamed the land and swam the sea were created, and that by your word, man was created as well in your own image. And it is by your word that you brought us to a conviction of our sin, and it is by your word that we learned that your Son was sent to die on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. And it is your word that still convicts us today in ways where we have sinned and that we need to turn back to you, and your word reminds us how we are to live our lives in a way that conforms to the character of your son. And so as we hear your word preached this morning, that your spirit who dwells within us would open our ears to hear and our hearts to grow in our affection for you, and your spirit empower us to obey. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I don't know about some of you, but I still remember the first days of driving. And I like to think that I've come a long way since those beginning days of student driving. Because when I first got into the car for the very first time, I had to run through a mental checklist of things to do. Seatbelt, buckled, check. Key in the Nixon, check. Foot on brake, check. Hand on 11 o'clock, 2 o'clock, check. Rear-view mirror, check. And then turn key ignition, check. Shift car into reverse, check. Release parking brake, check. And to even get out of the driveway for the first time took almost five minutes as my driving instructor waited as I ran through this checklist. Uh, thank God that it doesn't take this long for me to get out of the driveway now because otherwise my wife would probably be very very impatient with me. But it just takes maybe a minute or even less because I've gotten so accustomed to driving that driving has become second nature to me. But because driving has become second nature to me, I also pay a lot less attention to driving as well. I mean, there have been some Saturdays where I find myself driving to church when I should have been driving to the grocery store. I mean, and when I am in the parking lot of HEB, I don't tend to look at my rear view mirror as often as I used to. And unfortunately, it has also gotten me into accidents. Not into accidents, but almost into accidents. It's because as I've driven more and more, I've become complacent because it's become so intuitive to me. I've become smug in my ability to drive that I don't pay attention as much as I used to. And because I've become complacent, we really have to think about how, when we get used to things, when we get used to things at work, at school, or even our families, we really don't pay much attention as we used to. I mean, if you think about even your relationship with your spouse, when you were dating, you were sensitive to everything. But now that you're married, those things that used to bother you don't bother you as much as they did, right? But if you take the example of driving again, if you become complacent in your driving, you tend to think that you can actually do things while you drive. You think you can maybe put on your makeup as you drive to work. Uh, You can maybe even text as you drive now because you know how to drive so well. I mean, I've even seen people eating their lunch as they drive. Now, I wouldn't commend those activities, but it's just an observation that as people become more comfortable with things, they tend to pay less attention. And I have to wonder that... If we have become so accustomed to even our spiritual lives, have we become complacent? I mean, we go to small group every week. We know to share just enough to seem transparent, but just enough to hold something back. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you know to come to church service, you know when to stand, you know when to sit, you know the songs that are sung, You recite the creed, you repeat the confessions, you even know the passages that we study in the scriptures, and it becomes more of something that you go through the motions every week rather than something that you actually pay attention to. That your spiritual life, which you once paid very close, focused attention to, is something in which you have become complacent. It becomes just another checkbox of things to do during the week. And the danger of complacency is that we're not as discerning or as vigilant as we ought to be. And so how do we avoid being a complacent church? How do we avoid becoming a church that is smug in our spiritual life that we lose any type of discernment, any ability to really understand God's truth because we dismiss it as something that we do every week. Now, we've been studying through the book of 1 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy at the church of Ephesus. Paul's left Timothy there to make sure that the church is rightly ordered, to make sure that the doctrine that is taught there would be able to refute the false teachers, And so that the Ephesian church would not be complacent in their spirituality, but they would be vigilant, that they would be looking out and making sure that they're obeying what God had taught them. But Paul, at the end of his letter, brings us to two things that we really need to be wary of that may cause us to be complacent that may cause us to become smug, to cause us to become apathetic. Two particular topics, two things. And it's interesting because most people would think that after a doxology that he gives in the prior verses, especially in verse 16 where he says amen, you would think the letter would be over. But he still has much to say. Maybe he had some parchment space left, and after... Some guidance from the Spirit, he decided, well, the parchment is too expensive to waste, so I'm going to include some extra verses for the Ephesian church. But I think in these verses, we're gonna see two things that we ought to avoid if we are going to prevent complacency from happening in our church. And if your Bibles are not already open, we are going to be at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 20. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 20. Uh, if you're joining us now, uh, you will want to turn your Bibles there. So the first thing that we need to avoid is to avoid making wealth everything. We need to not really think about wealth having the security, the influence, and power that it can give us, And making it the sole thing that we desire in our lives. Making money, wealth, the goal. And Paul warns us about this in verse 17. That we need to avoid making wealth everything. Paul writes this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That an overconfidence in wealth, in getting stuff, in earning money, leads to pride. That's what haughtiness means. It means to be proud. Now, we see in the letter of 1 Timothy that the church in Ephesus had some pretty wealthy individuals. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 9, Paul addresses women. He says this in verse 9, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, if you're able to afford gold or pearls or costly attire, then you must be wealthy, that they were, there were well-off individuals within the church in Ephesus that Paul wanted to address. And even in the New Testament, we find that there are wealthy believers as well. We think of Zacchaeus, the former tax collector. He must have been welled off. Or if you think of Barnabas, who sold his land and gave it to the church. He must have been well off. Or even think about Lydia, the seller of purple cloth. She also must have been well off. If you even look at the Old Testament, we see believers who are blessed in abundance. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job. The list could go on. But the thing is, do we consider ourselves wealthy? I mean, if you were to ask me, I wouldn't say, I'm wealthy, and you would probably be right, depending on the context. I mean, according to a study done by Charles Schwab, it says that in order for you to be wealthy in the United States, your net asset worth has to be $2.4 million. That's what it means to be wealthy in the United States. Now, if you have $2.4 million, we would love to talk to you after service. But the thing is, that is the measure of wealthiness. But the thing is, how about if you compare yourself to the rest of the world? Now, I got these statistics from a website called I Remember the Poor. And so I will read them to you. If you have $2,200 to your name, you are in the top 50% of the world's wealthiest. If you made $1,500 last year, you're in the top 20% of the world's income earners. If you earn $25,000 or more annually, you are in the top 10% of world's income earners. So if you compare yourself to the world, I would dare say that a majority of us are quite wealthy. And how do you know that you've become proud of your wealth? How do you know that pride has crept in because you've been so overconfident in how much money that you make? It's when you hear and meet someone who's of a lower income bracket and you just look down upon them. Or when you share about your occupation, whatever it may be, doctor, lawyer, engineer, You find yourself standing taller, just a little bit prouder because of what you do. Or when you get your paycheck, you think to yourself, man, I earned every single dollar, every single penny of this check. I would say you would probably need to examine yourself and what you really place your value in. Because an overconfidence in wealth that leads to pride will lead to also complacency in your spiritual walk. If you look in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, every time that the nation of Israel did well, it always was trouble, because it would turn away from the Lord. And even if you look at the life of King Solomon, he had all the money in the world, but at the end of of his life, he turned away from the Lord. Is that if you put your confidence in money, and it becomes a source of pride. You are in danger. So what do we need to know or some kind of principle that will help us in really having the right perspective on wealth? It's this idea that wealth is temporal, but God's provision lasts. That wealth is temporal, but God's provision lasts. Paul writes this, continuing in verse 17, encouraging the wealthy in his congregation, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That He says here that riches are uncertain. They have an expiration date. They will not last forever. I mean, the things that you own do not last forever. The dress that you buy that is so fashionable today will then hang in your closet after you wear it once. Then it'll be put into the pile that's going to be donated to Goodwill. Then it's going to be in the Goodwill store. And after it's worn maybe one or two more times, it's going to be thrown in the trash heap. That's Ports car you drive today after... 100,000 miles on it, 200,000 miles on it, will become a junk heap. That phone that you have in your pocket, it has a lifespan. As it begins to slow down, the screen becomes cracked, it's no longer usable, it's recycled for scrap parts. And as a former aeronautics engineer, I will tell you, every single part on an airplane has an expiration date. It has a limited amount of hours in which it can be used. It is temporary. So that 401k account that you look at every single week, with a downturn of the U.S. economy, a 401k account worth millions could be worth thousands tomorrow. That property that you have invested in that you rent out to tenants when a big storm comes through will cost you thousands in repair. You may get a terrible tenant who's renting your property. It's going to cost you money because he doesn't pay his rent and then eventually you have to evict him. It not only costs you money, it costs you nights of sleep as well. Wealth is temporary. It does not last. But God's provision does. It reminds me of a story from Luke chapter 12. Uh, Jesus talks about a parable about a farmer in the Jezreel Valley, probably a wheat farmer, and he comes into a bumper crop year. He harvests all the wheat, and he thinks to himself, man, I have a problem. I have more wheat than I can actually store. Solution, bigger barns, more silos. So he decides to call in the carpenter from the town and says, hey, help draw me up plans for a new barn, a new silo. They work together. They get a plan together. They have the drawings in front of them. The farmer's looking forward to the larger barns, bigger silos, because if he's able to store up this wheat, he can live his life in comfort for the rest of his days. One night, he stays up later than maybe his wife, who's already gone to bed. He's looking at his plans, dreaming about the things that he will do once these silos and barns are built. But then as he works into the night, he begins to feel a sharp pain in his chest, begins to tighten And he thinks to himself, this is unusual. Gets up, thinking maybe some air, maybe some water will help. But before he's able to make even a few steps forward, he finds things just starting to blur. And before you know it, he blacks out and collapses on the floor. His wife wakes up in the morning and finds her husband dead in the morning. At the point of the parable, Jesus says that this man was a fool. He was a fool because he thought that if he could store up his wealth, he could live life to the fullest. But what he earned, he would never be able to spend. Now, it's interesting because following that particular parable, Jesus then talks about how God will provide for his people. That if God's able to feed the birds of the air, then he's able to care for you. That he's able to feed you, to clothe you, to shelter you. Now, just because God says he's going to feed you, it doesn't mean that you will be able to eat what you want. Meaning steak and potatoes every day. Not quite. But he will make sure that you don't go hungry. He will make sure that you're properly clothed. That you will have shelter. That that is God's promise. And how do we know that? It's because if God did not spare his son to save you from your sin, then would not this same God provide for your daily necessities? That wealth is temporary. It does not last. Only God's provision does. So then what are we supposed to do with our wealth? We need to learn to use our wealth to serve others. If you look at verse 18, which Paul has written here, he says this to the wealthy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That those who have been entrusted with much are to use their wealth... To bless others. Because I think there's a thought that because God has blessed me, therefore I must keep it. And that is not right. Because God says here that we need to be able to share what God has entrusted and given to us to be able to help others. And so we ought to look for opportunities to be generous. Well, what are those opportunities look like? Well, we are in a season of the church life where many of our members will be going overseas for short-term missions, and I have no doubt that some of you will receive their support letters. Then an opportunity to be generous is to consider financially supporting one of our short-term members who are going out to do God's work. Another opportunity is that if you are a member, that one of the things you might want to consider is to give regularly, and there are plenty of opportunities for you to do that, whether it be in the offertory in service, or the offertory boxes throughout church, or even online, that there are opportunities for you to be generous even within your church life by giving regularly to our church. An offering is not an obligation so much as it is an opportunity to express our thanks to God for what he has given to us. Now, for those of you who are students, you may think to yourself, Well, I don't have any income. I don't have any money. Well, then for you, generosity will cost you something, won't it? Maybe that extra cup of boba or coffee during the week is something you might need to set aside To learn the discipline of setting aside the $5 a week to be generous. Now, I'm not saying that you should use the $5 that you save up just for offertory or even for supporting a church member, while those things may be good, but maybe something you might want to consider is, God, I'm not going to drink the boba or drink the coffee, and so this $5 that I'm not using, how can I be generous to someone this week? And it's an exercise that is not only limited to our students, but to all of us as we drive into that Starbucks drive through on the way to work. How can we be generous? Because Paul also says that generosity leads to eternal reward. If you read in verse 19, Paul writes this, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And the word foundation here in verse 19, of course, alludes to building a building. That in order for you to build a home, you have to make sure that you have a strong and sturdy foundation so that storms will not be able to knock your home down. The sturdier the foundation, the more apt your home is able to remain standing. And so Paul is trying to say here is that when you learn to be generous, you are building up a foundation, a sturdy place upon to build an eternity. And it's interesting because he talks about truly life referring to eternal life. And verse 19 seems to have allusions to Jesus' teaching, where he says, Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and enter, but in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and enter. And so when we think about treasure, I can't promise you that you're going to get eternal jewels, or crowns, or homes, or even that sport car that you always wanted. But I can say this, that the treasure that you will receive is the commendation from God, well done, good and faithful servant. And you may think, what? That's it? Well done, good and faithful servant? Six words? For all I've done to steward God's resources? But don't we desire commendation? Don't we desire to hear our praise at work when our boss says, you are so essential to our team that without you, this work project would never have gotten done? That you are our number one employee. I mean, for students, at graduation, we want to hear the words, magna cum laude, summa cum laude, graduated with honors, And we're willing to do so much just to hear those three words. How much do we do for commendation? And for some of us, we would love to hear from our earthly fathers I am proud of you, I'm proud to be your dad. I am proud that you are my daughter. I am proud that you are my son. And if we desire to hear those words from earthly individuals, how much more wonderful will it be when we hear the commendation from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. So that's one thing that we need to avoid in order to prevent complacency from occurring within our church to avoid seeing wealth as everything. The second thing that we need to really consider is to avoid making knowledge everything. Now, I know I'm going to dangerous territory here because when I say avoid making knowledge everything, some people may interpret it as, does that mean I do not need to learn anything about God? No, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that making knowledge everything is when we oftentimes transfer or translate spiritual maturity to the accumulation of spiritual knowledge. That because we know spiritual things, we are therefore spiritually mature. Because you know things such as the homeostatic or hypostatic union of Christ, because you know about premillennialism or amillennialism or what's post-trib or pre-trib, you are so much more spiritual. But that is dangerous thinking. Because if you look with me here in this particular verse, Paul has been trying to help the Ephesian church to avoid these false teachers who are engaging in this activity found in verse 20. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. For the false teachers in 1 Timothy, or in the church of Ephesus, we were trying to teach a theology that was not quite right and that it was about the accumulation of knowledge. They were trying to trace their genealogies, determine their bloodlines. They're trying to understand the law but applied it incorrectly. They told people to abstain from marriage and abstain from food. They were thinking that there was a separation between body and spirit, a type of proto. Gnosticism, saying that anything that is spirit is good, things of the body were bad. And that it was knowledge that you needed in order to escape this. And the word irreverent babble here, the word irreverent in some other translations is ungodly, ungodly babble. That the knowledge that these false teachers purported did not lead to a lifestyle That was very good. And this knowledge led these false teachers to have a lifestyle that was less than Christ-like. If you look in verse 4 of chapter 6, he says this. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This idea that knowing spiritual things, conversations about it, makes us more spiritual. But it's not true. That knowledge without application leads to spiritual danger. That if we don't apply what we know, then we will just become proud and then we become complacent, that we don't need to do anything because we know enough about our spiritual lives. And it's interesting because we talk about the main verse, the theme of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, which says this. In chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And if you notice in verse 15, it's not just about knowing the right things, it's about behaving in the household of God correctly. That these truths that we believe and that we understand begin to affect the way that we live. And if you look in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul provides different instructions to Timothy in terms of how the church should conduct itself. He talks about how men and women should pray in the church. Who are deacons and elders that would be qualified to serve? How should we treat our widows? How should we treat our elders? That all the things that we know should affect the way that we behave. Because doing spiritual things is as important as knowing spiritual things. That applying the spiritual truth that you learn is just as important if not more important, than just accumulating knowledge of spiritual things. Because in verse 20, Paul writes this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And what is the deposit? This body of truths that's able to transform lives. That is what has been entrusted to Timothy to teach. And to apply even in his own life. So it's not about what you know. But applying what you already know. It doesn't mean that you have to know a whole lot. Sometimes even the little that you know is important to be able to apply. And to actually go do And that we need to put into practice what we know. Because by doing, we begin to guard that deposit of sound, repository of teaching to us. Because it's not only something that we're able to articulate, but something that transforms our lives. I remember my mom, when she came to faith, I was very doubtful of her conversion because she had an eighth grade education and was not able to read the Bible very well. And I thought to myself, would my mom be able to understand the key theological distinctions of our faith, like the Trinity, or the fact that God is, or Jesus is fully God and fully man? Would, he, would she be able to tell me these things back to me? And she wouldn't be able to. And I was thinking to myself, is she really saved And so she recounted an incident to me that I've always remembered. She was still at work. And her coworkers, after discovering that she had become a Christian, were trying to persuade her not to go to church and to leave the faith. They said, Christians, they don't tend to care about their families as much. They care about the church more than they care about their own sons and daughters. They said, the money is only interested in taking your money. And I said, okay, so mom, how did you respond to them? Because I was thinking, was my mom persuaded or did she mount some kind of defense of her own? And she said this, I told them that I don't know, but why don't you come to church and we can find out together? And I was thinking to myself, that is profound. In the sense that she may not know much in terms of spiritual truth, but she knew what was important, that God was in charge in leading these people to faith. And that all she could do was bring them into an encounter with God. And so let's just say that her son was very humbled that day when she shared that story. Because with a four-year degree in theology, though I knew a lot of things, I still have yet to learn how to apply a lot of those things that I've learned. And as a church, if we don't begin to apply those truths in our lives, we too may become complacent, become smug. And thinking because we know these spiritual truths of our faith, that we're mature, when in reality, we still have much to learn. So how do we avoid complacency within the church, two things. First, avoid making wealth everything. Second, we need to learn to avoid making knowledge everything. Now, I want to close with this illustration of a couple that I heard of that were able to apply these truths very well. When I was at an OMF seminar, preparing to go overseas, someone shared about a couple who served overseas and had to come home because the wife had a medical condition that prevented the couple from remaining on the field. When they returned from the field, they went back to their original professions. The wife was a teacher, earning a respectable salary. The husband was an engineer, earning a six-figure salary. And as they talked about it, they discovered that they would never be able to return to the field. And so they decided as a family that they would live off the wife's income and that the husband's income that they would invest into the work of missions to send people overseas. That they were able to know that wealth isn't everything. But knowing that they were lost overseas, they applied that truth by using that wealth to make sure other people would be able to spread and share the gospel. And so Paul's charge to the rich, to those who are rich in wealth, to those who are rich in knowledge, don't make it everything. Don't make it everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous amount of blessings that we have received as followers of Christ, the riches of our faith, and also the blessings that you have bestowed upon us, both seen as well as unseen. We pray that your Spirit would give us the ability to steward the resources that you have given us well, to be able to use them to bless others. And that with the knowledge that you have given us, however much or however little, that you would teach us and help us to be able to apply it in our lives so that we as a church would indeed be rightly ordered, known not just by what we know, but also by what we do. And so, Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.